Hello, how are you this week? I'm John James and I've been looking at the close relationship between music and nature in these podcasts. So far we've covered birdsong and storms and this time I'm off to the coast. Sarah Jane Brown, a Welsh landscape artist based in Pembrokeshire, will be joining me there and you can see one of her wonderful seascapes on the Arts Active webpage next to this podcast. We'll be talking about the musicality of her painting and her particular connection to the sea. But let's start by going on a jaunt to Cornwall. This is the Atlantic spreading out before the Cornish castle ruins of Tintagel, summoning to mind not just the sea, but also the myth of that very special place. Bax's tone poem is probably his most famous piece. A shame, really, because he wrote so many fantastic symphonies too. But you can see why it's so popular. It's a wonderful orchestral crescendo here that opens the tone poem. And you can hear so clearly the waves crashing as he put it on the indomitable rocks of the cliff edge. And you can perhaps hear too that he was falling head over heels in love at the time with a glamorous pianist called Harriet Cohen. The sea seems to reflect his buoyant mood and high spirits. Depicting waves in music is quite straightforward. You can easily ripple up and down, and the piano is wonderfully suited for just that, as Ravel is demonstrating here in his depiction of a small boat just bobbing on the surface. Ravel really is the master at rippling, isn't he? I don't know whether he'd like that description, but you can hear how these weightless harmonies just drift above. And he's picking out, as he often does, lovely lines in the top and middle register as he goes. And you have the sense of two motions at play here, the water lapping up against the boat and the boat just lolling on the surface idly. So the gestures of waves, or the tide, or the swell, all of these have an obvious musicality. But capturing the calm is perhaps harder because of precisely that lack in movement. Music is, after all, about movement through time. But this is Telemann rising to the challenge in his orchestral suite called Ebb and Flood. Listen to how long these notes are in the woodwinds to create that sense of calm. You've got to have good puff to keep those going. Mm -hmm. 
think the best seascapes in music, whether they're tone poems or symphonies or solo works, connect us not just to the movement of the water, but to the deeper symbolic potential of the sea as well. The sea has this mythical presence, doesn't it? A timelessness. But its various states can easily be allied to personal and very emotional narratives too. So it's both universal and personal. Benjamin Britten manages this combination so successfully in his opera Peter Grimes. So in this first sea interlude that was taken from the opera, you can hear the high skies of Aldborough in the violins right at the top of their register. But this also signifies the loneliness of Grimes, his isolation. A quick eddying of the waves in the woodwind. Before a menacing swell of the brass that suggests that all will not be well. And indeed, throughout this opera, the sea will have a very threatening presence. Each interlude, and there are four of them, is a sea state that alludes to both Grimes' psyche, his tortured inner world, and to those forces that are beyond his control, both in society and at sea. Another composer who delivers on that combination between the physical properties of the sea and the mythical symbolic qualities is Debussy. And yes, I couldn't very well do a podcast like this without mentioning La Mer, could I? His set of three symphonic sketches about the sea. These were inspired by memories and his childhood attachments to the water. So they're emotional responses first and foremost, but they also evoke that capricious, sometimes volatile nature of the sea. And it's just perfect how Debussy does this because he goes into the depths of the ocean and you have that wonderful sense of expanse at the same time as having these complex rhythms that build up stratum upon stratum in the score until you get something that is as rich to the ear as the sea is to the eye. Rather like Debussy, Sarah Jane Brown, as you're about to hear, also works from memory 
and emotional imprints when she paints the sea. Here's our conversation that we had that delves into her creative processes and her maritime inspiration. I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Jane Brown, who is a Welsh landscape artist based in the wonderful city of St David's on the far-flung west coast of Pembrokeshire. And it was in that city that I went to a little gallery with my wife to pick up a painting and we didn't know what we were looking for but then this wonderfully evocative seascape just spoke to us and it was by Sarah and it was entitled Moving On and immediately you had that connection uh, between the scene and an emotional narrative and it was clear that this was a tone poem and not a postcard of any kind. That's a really lovely way to put it, a, a poem rather than a postcard. I, I, I really did my like best. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a very fair way to put it. You know, basically, what I'm doing as a painter is actually creating visual poetry, which I guess is something that is um, what music does. You're kind of uh, trying to recreate a series of experiences or emotions or feelings even thoughts that flit through your head sometimes um, uh, uh, in a way that just taking a snapshot doesn't quite cut it. And that's interesting. I wonder how that translates through to your working practice because we know that Debussy, famously with La Mer, when he was writing that, was in a, a landlocked studio in, in Burgundy and he in turn was inspired by Turner who would look at the sea and then turn his back on it and paint from a place of memory and emotion is that what you do as well it's exactly what I do yeah I I am surround I'm fortunate that where I live I'm on this peninsula at the far-flung western reaches of Wales um so I'm immersed in a marine environment and all of my previous working life was uh, on various ships and boats and <laughs> all kinds of uh, different marine environments um, and I walk on the coast path every day or the beach with the dog. I swim in the sea very often, all year round. Um, so I'm really familiar with the sea and it's kind of, it's a part of me. Um, and it's a constant source of inspiration, of emotion, of visual ideas, um, all of that sort of feeds in and then sometimes I'll photograph or I'll sketch as a as a sort of aid to my memory or sometimes even just as an excuse to stop and really take notice of something. Um, they become kind of source material or reference that I can refer back to if I want to but mostly that's just a way of kind of embedding it so that back in the studio um, I can recreate that experience or that emotion um, hopefully without being a slave to that source material so um, I tend to sort of look at it to remind me of the experience and then I put it away and let go of it and just paint from memory and and emotion so that it's much more personal. That's fascinating and, and what do you find when you mm. do this recreation um, and you paint from your mind's eye that you have certain recurring images that you're drawn to that perhaps weren't there in the actual moment of seeing them, in the actual observation 
um, but that come back to you because of a, an emotional connection. Colour especially does that because colour is such an emotive thing. Um, you know, that's kind of a tool in your arsenal of <laughs> um, devices or instruments, mm. if you like. Um, it's uh, you can kind of remember the stunning colours of a sunset, and you, uh, you know the number of times I hear people say, "Oh, you couldn't paint that," mm. <laughs> but um, obviously, as a painter, that's what I try to do. Um, that sort of the intensity of colour, and even sometimes a grey day can have an intensity of of a neutral colour. It can still be, you know, the emotions or the thoughts that 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 experience conjured can still be um, as powerful, even if it's a more muted colour. There's such an obvious connection there to the world of Debussy. Um, he was so led by musical colour. Um, and so each chord had a different yeah. resonance for him. But beyond that, he was informed by the pleasure of seeing those colours and sound. And uh, I wonder what other compositional devices come to mind when I mean, can you see parallels mm-hmm. between your world and the world of composing? Masses of parallels, yeah. Each composition, uh, which is a good overarching description, mm. um, it, you know, has multiple layers and multiple complexities, um, and and provides a structure that holds the whole thing together. So whether it's music or painting, you're still following a format that that gives it structure or gives it rhythm or gives it uh, tonality um it, again interesting parallel of terminology that you know in painting um your compositional devices that the most important thing is tonal value that's the thing that the human eye sees first um and i guess that's probably true of the human ear you know you you hear uh a, a deep tone and a, and a high note um, in different ways, but they sort of, you kind of need both. Mm. If you had all of one, it would be very dark and very deep and very ominous. And if you had all of the trills, <laughs> it, it would be too um, tinny. It would be too, and it's the same with painting. You kind of need that blend of both. You need to balance the composition so that you have depth but you also have surface interest. And um, so it was quite interesting listening to Debussy, um, the way that he weaves those two things together. Mm. um, As I listen to that... um, We're talking of La Mer. Yes, to to La Mer. Um, Particularly the second movement, where he's looking at the play of light on the water and the reflections I could kind of visually imagine the sea in that uh, whilst listening to that the um, the sort of eddies and patterns that um, you've kind of got this sense of depth um, these kind of deep bass notes that kind of return and return but then you have this sort of sense of uh, whirlpools and sort of whirling and swirling at eddies and patterns rising like bubbles kind of coming up to the surface and then opening out that's a wonderful um, way of putting it and repeating yeah so 
it is very interesting how um, if you just had those sort of surface sounds, it would be it would it wouldn't have the meaning that it has with the depth as well. So that's always something that I'm trying to look for when I'm painting is to balance. Well, that's such a beautiful summing up of Debussy's art as well as your own creative process. Thank you so much for that. And I remember from a previous conversation that we had, uh, you're talking about Picasso's approach to his own process and, and the musical parallels there. And you came up with a wonderfully pithy quote of his that was, to draw, you must close your eyes and sing. What do you think he was meaning by that? In a way, what we were just talking about is that is that when you're, as a painter, as a musician, as any creative artist, you are trying to communicate something more than you might first imagine. Um, and, and you're trying to give something of yourself from the depths of yourself. Yes, and I, I love that analogy of singing because it's giving voice to something very deep. I wonder, I wonder whether we might have prompted a, a new working practice for you where you're singing along <laughs> to musical landscapes. Can we just finish by asking where we could see your work? Because uh, many of our listeners are in Wales. Um, where, where can we actually see your next exhibition? Uh, okay, so I have work in a gallery in St David's called Etc. A gallery in Llanidloes called Oriel Coffee. Uh, a gallery in Cardiff, uh, in Llandaff, um, which is called Off the Wall Gallery. So there you go, plenty of spaces to view Sarah's work. And Sarah, thanks again so much for joining me and sharing your insights on the creative process. So many parallels there, weren't there, between the world of music and of painting. Thank you. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Jessica Cottis, who, aside from being a brilliant conductor, is also a keen lepidopterist. And if, like me, you had to look that up, it's the study of butterflies and moths. And together, we're going to be looking at the flora and fauna in Mahler's Third Symphony. Mahler, who is so closely associated with the world of nature. So, until then, happy listening.